This is AgriPulse Open Mic, brought to you by Robbo AgriFinance. Robbo AgriFinance is a leading provider of financial services for agricultural producers and agribusinesses in the United States, adding value with industry expertise, client-focused solutions, and long-term business relationships. The Robbo AgriFinance nationwide network of relationship managers, insurance and risk management specialists offer a comprehensive suite of services, including loans, crop insurance, and sophisticated risk management products such as interest rate and commodity swaps. Robo AgriFinance is a division of Robobank, a premier bank in the global agriculture industry and one of the world's highest rated privately held banks. For more information, contact Robo AgriFinance at 888-722-7766 or visit us online at RoboAg. Chris Galen, Senior VP of Communications from the National Milk Producers Federation. Welcome to AgriPulse Open Mic. Thank you, Ken. Let's talk about what you anticipate coming to your industry in the near future. You have posed it as a dairy cliff. I wonder if you really believe that is a serious concern of your industry as we cross into the new year. The issue has to do with how the 1949 permanent agriculture law is set up, Ken, and that is that if we see Congress fail to pass a farm bill yet in 2012, we don't have no farm programs at all. What happens is that in the case of at least some commodities, including dairy, but not only dairy, we revert back to that 1949 law. Now, my understanding of this law is that for other commodities like corn and wheat, it affects their growing seasons. So you wouldn't see a return to the parity pricing of the 49 law until the spring for some other commodities. But because milk is a perennial commodity, that's why come January 1, if nothing changes between now and then, the 49 law would have us revert back to much, much higher dairy price support levels. And that is the concern that a lot of people have, which is that in the short run, it could result in much higher milk prices for farmers, but longer term, those much higher prices could be disruptive to the marketplace, could affect demand, and would be sufficiently disruptive that it's an outcome that isn't good on a permanent basis for farmers. So how are you trying to address this rather than come down to a crisis situation How would you prefer to go about it to be able to put dairy farmers on the right foot going into the new year? Our goal has been to pass a new safety net for dairy farmers. We've had that goal now, Ken, for over a couple years. And in particular, we've worked very hard this year to get a new safety net for farmers. So the short answer is no, we don't want a 1949 law to be the safety net underpinning dairy farmers. We want something that's modern and new and was developed in the 21st century. That said, if in the short run, if this is the type of pressure it takes, this dairy cliff is what it takes for Congress to pass the new Dairy Security Act, well, then so be it. House Speaker Boehner has been opposed, very much so, to the dairy price support legislation that's been brought forward so far. Is he in the minority or majority of those people who are questioning whether the dairy support programs in the future should be as they have been defined by you? 
Well, if you look at the support it's received in the Senate and even in the House, I think we have a lot of support, Ken. Keep in mind that it passed the Senate, passed the Senate Ag Committee, and then it passed the full Senate by a wide bipartisan margin. The Dairy Security Act was included in the Farm Bill that passed the House Ag Committee, also on a bipartisan basis, and the vote was not even really close. So I think that you have to take what you see here with a grain of salt, uh, that the principles that are driving ag policy, both in the Senate and the House, both Republicans and Democrats, are supportive of what we're, tr- of what we're trying to do here. Keep in mind that the Dairy Security Act, Ken, is not about price supports at all. And in fact, what happens under what we're proposing is that the price support program goes away entirely. It currently exists at a much, much lower level then it's really had any impact on the marketplace. And so what we're talking about is is a very radical restructuring of the safety net affecting dairy farmers. There would be no more direct payments. The MILC program goes away. There would be no government buyer of last resort in the form of the price support program. There would be no export subsidies with our dairy export incentive program. All those go away. And what they would be replaced with is simply a margin insurance program that would help farmers on a voluntary basis use risk management tools to protect themselves against periods of very low, low margins. We think that this is a much more market-oriented approach and involves less direct government support than what we've seen in decades in the dairy industry. Chris, give me your view of the health of the dairy farmer, economically speaking, in the United States as you see it today. Well, this has been a pretty rough year for dairy farmers, Ken, Uh, and it's been true throughout the livestock sector. We saw the record high feed prices earlier this year. A lot of that was driven by the drought. And so what's happened is that uh, if you have any type of critters on your operation, uh, pigs, chickens, or cattle, it it was a tough year to make money. And I think the worst issue is that this this year came just three years after the devastating year of 2009, And so for a lot of dairy farmers, they were still trying to rebuild the equity they lost and repay the loans they had to take out to survive 2009, and then we were hit with another year like this. I think the impact this year has been uh, somewhat more divergent depending on how much of your own feed you grew, uh, what type of uh, option positions you held regarding how much you had to pay for feed when you bought it. Uh, so, again, the impact can be variable, but uh, getting back to what we're trying to do with a dairy safety net, we're, we're seeing more volatility in the price of milk. We're seeing a lot more volatility in the price of feed. And so this margin insurance that we're trying to get passed through Congress will allow farmers to help mitigate the volatility aspects of both of those things. You know, the current safety net we have now is really just tied to the price of milk, and that no longer is the only determinant of whether a farmer is in the black or the red. You also have to look at feed costs these days, and the program that we're trying to get through Congress really helps address both feed costs as well as milk prices because it looks at the margin between those two things. Do you feel that the renewable fuel standard has increased the cost of your feed, and does the National Milk Producers Federation have a position on that? Well, the reason that we have been more focused on passing a new farm bill and the Dairy Security Act is because there's only so much political capital we can invest in what we're trying to do on Capitol Hill. So our number one goal, Ken, has been to pass a new farm bill containing the Dairy Security Act. And then regardless of what happens with uh, biofuels policy and the renewable fuel standards, we have a way of helping our dairy farmers ensure against both low milk prices, high feed costs, or the combination. 
And so I think that's the long-term solution. It's not to look at uh, things that may or may not affect corn prices or soybean or hay prices. It's how do we come up with a safety net that will help farmers on a voluntary basis. They have to choose this path, but if they want to take out insurance that will help provide protections against high feed costs, that's what we're trying to do with the Dairy Security Act. And so that's really been our focus is trying to get that in place. And then it doesn't matter uh, whether there's a renewable fuel standard as much. Chris Galen, in another area, the Humane Society of the United States has definitely had its battles with the poultry industry and now Mm -hmm. with the pork industry. Do you feel like the dairy industry is going to be in their line of fire in the future? We're always concerned about what the animal rights people are trying to do. I think from a public policy standpoint, National Milk was part of many of the other ag groups that expressed concern with what the egg producers were looking to do with writing into federal law cage sizes because we do have some concerns about putting into federal law any type of uh, regulation or specifications regarding farm animal housing. And I think that's why we're with uh, a lot of the other farm groups and expressing concerns about that. Um, so, so that's, I think, looking at the issue, Ken, from a defensive posture, and that is, you know, what do we have to do or protect against in terms of federal legislation, or even at, at the state level, I don't think the Humane Society is concerned as much about the dairy industry as they are perhaps poultry and pork, but I think it would be naive for us to assume that they aren't looking at the entire spectrum of livestock commodities. So really what we have put most of our capital towards in terms of political capital within the industry, can is looking at what can we do proactively to demonstrate the commitment that dairy farmers have to responsible animal care. So for the last few years, we've been rolling out a a voluntary standards-based program across the dairy farm community. Uh, It's called the National Dairy Farm Program, and it has a whole list of criteria that farmers have to to agree to to follow uh, to be enrolled in, in the program. And I think that's the best way that we can really play defense long-term against the animal rights groups. We're never going to shut up the most uh, volatile and and, uh, voluble critics of of animal agriculture, but I think if we're going to say to the public that dairy farmers know best for their cows, which they do, you also have to have some sort of program or some criteria to point to. And so that's the the value of having a program like ours that we're seeing increasing acceptance among uh, dairy farmers of this program. Chris Galen, turning to the area of the school lunch program, which has been closely related to the dairy industry through the years, the USDA has been pushing back against flavored milk or sweetened milk. And I wonder how your industry is addressing that because it appears you can't get children to drink as much milk if it is not flavored. Therefore, you're losing quantity. Are you coming out behind in this whole situation with USDA? Yeah, I know what you mean, Ken, because I know that in my own school district in Fairfax County, Virginia, where I have two elementary-aged children, uh, a couple of years ago the school system banned uh, chocolate milk or flavored milk, not so much about sh- uh, the sugar per se, but because it had high fructose corn syrup. When they reformulated to contain sugar, uh, then they allowed the flavored milk back in the school. In, in other places, they've, they've taken out the flavored milk entirely. Well, the good news is that uh, the, uh, the latest version of the Child Nutrition Act that governs the school lunch program does allow for flavored milk, although it does have to be 
fat-free. And I think that what, uh, to, to the credit of the processors who are involved in the school lunch program, they have in many cases reformulated their flavored milk, chocolate usually, uh, to have a lower sugar content than what's been there in the past. So I think the, the short answer is uh, there are maybe different formulations that can be used to reduce the overall number of sugar-based carbohydrates in the product. But I think the long-term issue is to remind the, the policymakers, and a lot of this is uh, local level, local school districts, uh, that milk has a unique nutrient profile. You've got calcium, you've got vitamins A and D, you've got other trace minerals and nutrients plus protein, and very few, if any, other foods offer that on a cost-effective basis. And so if there are a few extra grams of, of sugar in there because kids like chocolate milk, I think that people shouldn't just focus on the the individual trees, they have to look at the overall nutrient forest and recognize that there's a complete package of nutrition there, whether it's white milk or chocolate milk. Chris Galen, thank you very much for being our guest on AgriPulse Open Mic. You're welcome, Ken. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Robo AgriFinance. Visit them online at RoboAg.com. I'm Ken Root.